Just Life, a programme from Radio Maria England. Good morning, everybody. This morning we are joined in the studio by Johanna Schoenecker. Good morning, Johanna. Morning. I hope I've pronounced your name okay. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Johanna is originally from Germany, but she is a PhD student at Clare College, Cambridge, where she studies planned sciences. And today she is going to be talking to us about the very important topic of forest fires. Johanna, please please introduce uh, us to plant sciences and, and forest fires. Yeah, sure. So I actually, I haven't always been a plant scientist, of course not, um, but I have always really loved um, being in nature. Um, so that led me to study environmental science for my undergrad. And um, I kind of discovered that ecosystems are, are really fascinating. So I'm actually not concerned in my research with the small cells of plants or, or the individual plants, but I look at the macro scale at, at um, an ecosystem level. Um, and I got there through kind of a little detour, actually, because I, I came to Cambridge originally to study um, for a master's in um, polar studies, where I looked at um, Arctic vegetation, so at a very extreme environment, um, yeah, in, in the Arctic. And yeah, I thought it was just really interesting how things grow under such harsh conditions and how that is um, affected by climate change and changing. Um, and for my last essay, I was actually allowed um, to kind of choose a topic um, on my own. And I stumbled upon the fact that there are actually fires in the Arctic, um, which amazed me because I had no idea that um, that there could be fires in boreal forests um, in the Arctic, which is a region that's usually known to be quite cold. Um, And I really enjoyed that topic in a way, and that was kind of the the gateway for me to to get the opportunity to study um, wildfires in more detail in my PhD research. Um, but this time they're focused on uh, California and especially on the region of the Sierra Nevada, um, which is a mountain range range in eastern California. And you might have heard on the news um, over the last couple of years, especially it's becoming more and more common to have huge fires there. And lots of people are affected. Um, the smoke can be seen from miles and miles away air quality is affected and, and frankly people lose their their homes in them as well their livelihoods um, and California in general is a, is a region where fire has become ever more prevalent um, more area burns every year um, fires are becoming more frequent and also more severe and so f- forest fires are the same as any fire really you need um, three components for them to burn, so that's fuel. So you need some some wood or biomass of some sort. You need heat and you need oxygen. And when you have these three components, um, often you need some sort of ignition, which in, in forest fires, that's um, uh, when they're wildfires, um, that's usually a lightning strike or um, an escaped campfire. And other than them just like looking crazy, um, 
the 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 one reason why we're mainly concerned about them is um, because they emit carbon dioxide. So fires aren't necessarily or inherently a bad thing and actually are an integral part of many ecosystems. And there are some species that rely on periodic fire to thrive. And um, so some people might have heard of um, cones that some pine trees have. They're called serotonous cones. And they actually enclose the seeds um, very tightly and they only open under heat. So they actually need the fire um, to reproduce and, and to thrive. But yeah, as I said, um, fires also do emit carbon dioxide and um, the global carbon dioxide emissions in 2021 from forest fires are actually two and a half times as as high as all of the EU's um, fossil fuel um, carbon dioxide emissions. So all member states of the EU together um, emitted two and a half times less carbon dioxide than forest fires. And it's an, it's an often forgotten um, contributor to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, but yeah, it's quite crucial. It makes up a big, a bit, big part of global emissions. Um, the thing with the fires is that it's not necessarily a problem as long as vegetation grows back. So those trees that, that burn during a fire um, through that combustion process, they release CO2. And um, we've all heard about um, carbon offsetting, which is a big topic these days, um, as we want to reduce the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because that's what, what contributes to climate change even, even more. Um, and we've all heard of carbon offsetting. And one, one preferred way of doing that is um, by planting trees. So you can imagine that when trees burn and all that biomass is lost, um, they can actually capture it back um, through photosynthesis when they grow back. So when a forest recovers after fire, um, sun energy from the sun and carbon dioxide is turned into biomass and into oxygen so on a in a, in a normal scenario um, there actually aren't any net emissions of of carbon dioxide from a fire when the vegetation grows back because then just as much as was emitted through the fire is actually being taken back up um, when they regrow but um, you guessed it, with climate change, um, things like, well, summers are getting hotter, they start sooner, um, there's more dryness, um, more drought in California especially. And this is also a problem for plants because they need um, enough water to uh, grow back. And um, so over time... Um, some of these um, forested ecosystems might not be able to regrow properly and thus we might be um, losing carbon as a net effect. Um, this also happens when um, fires burn more um, repeatedly. So if there's a second fire in the same spot, um, that also might make it more difficult for trees to regrow and they might actually transition to a different ecosystem that's more open um, that has grass that just can't capture as much um, biomass as those trees can. Um, so that's why we worry about that. 
and of course higher intensity fire also puts human livelihood livelihoods at risk um, as we tend to settle more and more in high-risk areas which are um, lovely forested bits of land but um, yeah they're quite prone to wildfire and before I tell you more about my research I think we'll have a little music break. Thank you so much Johanna. Let's listen to Holy Spirit Come With Your Fire.
come, Holy Spirit, let your fire fall. You are listening to Just Life on Radio Maria. And we are here with Johanna Schoenecker, who is doing a PhD at Cambridge in Planned Sciences. And Johanna has been telling us so interestingly about how forest fire isn't inherently a bad thing. And as we know, there's also the fire of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a bad thing either, especially at this time of year as we approach the Pentecost novena. Johanna is interested in ecosystems and how much carbon dioxide fires release into the atmosphere. Johanna, tell us more about your research. Yeah, so I just told you how... um it's not necessarily a bad thing to have fire as long as the vegetation regrows and captures back all the carbon that is released into the atmosphere. And um, so that's exactly what I research is how uh, vegetation recovers after fire and how that uh, changes over time or has changed over the last couple of decades um, under different climate conditions for different vegetation types um, at different elevations, fire severities. So lots of different factors um, factoring in um, how vegetation actually recovers, how how trees um, grow back. And um, I was meant to go out to California and actually do some some more classic uh, conventional field work. So for an ecologist, that would be taking vegetation surveys and soil samples um, using methods along those lines. But um, like so many things, the pandemic has... um, killed those those plans um at least last year um but i'm actually hoping to go out there in, in august um to look at at some fire scars on the ground and and how trees are recovering but um in the meantime i've been using mainly um satellite images to um look at vegetation recovery um those those satellites maybe it's it's hard to imagine what they actually are but uh, I can guarantee you that if you've ever looked at the night sky, you've actually probably seen one before, uh, maybe without realizing it. Um, but they they move across the night sky like a star, basically. It doesn't it doesn't look like a plane because they don't they don't blink, but um, it kind of moves through the sky. Um, yeah, and you can very clearly clearly spot them. And there are, there are thousands of, of satellites in orbit around the Earth, and some, of course, help us get um, television into our homes, but um, lots of them carry sensors that can be really useful for uh, the kind of research I do for, for lots of other um, topics in, in scientific, scientific research. Um, so those, those satellites I use, they're called Earth observation satellites because they have sensors that look down um, at the Earth they're a bit like cameras, or they, they are actually basically cameras. Um, so they just look down on the Earth and they capture a, a little section, a little image of the Earth's surface. Um, but as opposed to a normal camera that we use every day on, a, on our phones or just a handheld camera, they actually can record um, parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that the, the eye um, can't see necessarily. So it's it's a little bit like an like a thermal camera that maybe police use to chase um, a robber that's um, a fugitive. Um, they can see people um, people with them at night because they emit thermal radiation that we can't see with our eyes, but the camera actually can. And those sensors are, are very similar. 
um, that are on on the satellites, so they can capture, for example, different um, bands in the infrared, which is that, for for example, that thermal um, section of the spectrum. So they can see, or they can show us lots of little bits that the human eye can't necessarily see. So that gives us um, the opportunity to watch uh, vegetation regrow after a fire from space. Um, and then we get huge amounts of data that we use um, just computational methods with um, to see how, um, how healthy vegetation is in a particular fire scar um, after the fire and then maybe one year after the fire and maybe five years after the fire and how quickly it recovers and um, and also if that's changing. And all of these bits of information for every um, for every fire, in my case in, in California specifically, um, all of these information bits about vegetation, I can then relate um, to other, the other factors I mentioned earlier. So to climate, climate um, or climatic conditions at the time of fire and after fire, to the vegetation type, um, the elevation, if it's on a south facing slope, for example, which usually means it's a bit drier because that's where the sun is most um, the, the strongest during the day. Um, and I can, I'm trying to at the moment piece all of this information together and see how that's changing over time and if vegetation is in fact as we, we think it might be um, recovering a bit more slowly um, over time. And so I'm using all these, these data that I have and I'm feeding them into um, various statistical models that actually tell us exactly um, which variables are the most important. So if, for example, fire severity um, is very important, which we think it is, because if you imagine a, a low severity fire um, only really burns sort of the debris that's on the ground already, um, but it leaves those beautiful mature trees intact. And that means that they survive and then they can um, seed and reproduce. So we actually don't really lose anything of the, the ecosystem. Um, but when a fire is very severe, it might actually kill all live vegetation. So all these beautiful mature trees, um, all the grasses, shrubs that grow between. Um, so then we actually need um, neighboring patches of unburnt forest um, we rely on those to have um, mature trees that then seed into the fire scars. But those fires are sometimes multiple football fields um, or yeah, even, even larger scale, scales, like hundreds of football fields um, in size. So you can Im imagine it takes a long time for those seeds to actually then reach sort of the, the middle bit um, of that. Um, so that's why it can, at high severities, take a very long time um, for vegetation to regrow after a fire and that's that's not surprising so that's one trend we've we've really seen in um, the analyses um, but then as I mentioned those those lower severity fires they can actually be really beneficial for um, for the forests because they clear up um, that fuel before it can build up so um, that's actually how those forests in the in the western US 
before the um, European settlers arrived in the early 19th century, those forests actually burned at um, at quite a high frequency, so every 10 to 20 years, um, at low severity. So just the debris on the forest floor was, was cleared up and most of the trees actually stayed alive. And that's kind of the, the idea um, behind what we call prescribed burns. So in the US, there's the US Forest Service, but um, in the UK, there's, there's an equivalent um, kind of government body that, that manages public lands and, and forests. And they have been trying to reintroduce these um, um, low-intensity fires through um, prescribed burns. So they will literally go around and set fire to the forest, but they do that at very specific points in time so that actually um, the conditions are such that it won't spread uncontrollably. So they're also called um, controlled burns. Um, and that's a forest management technique to make sure the, f the fuel can't build up um, to then enable um, higher severity fires, which are the, the ones that emit all the carbon and then um, sometimes don't really grow, grow back um, as we would like them to. And those high severity fires are usually also the ones that destroy homes and human infrastructure. Um, so they, they really affect us. But in, in some people's minds, um, sort of all, all fire is created equal and, and equally bad, and, and they don't really accept those um, prescribed fires as, um, as necessary. And they just think, oh, the forest is burning. Um, that's bad. But um, yeah, so I hope my research can actually make a case for more of these prescribed burns um, to forest managers and politicians and also lead um, in the general population to, to more acceptance of those prescribed fires that they can see them as a good alternative um, to those big high severity fires that eat up um, people's livelihoods. And um, yeah, so people often ask me what, what can... What can I do as a sort of layperson um, when it comes to those forest fires? And, and that's really one of the big things is just to change your perspective on prescribed burns. Um, let the forest managers manage for carbon storage and also um, do these prescribed burns so that none of the, the big burns um, affect um, people's people's houses and, and homes. And then the other big thing we can do is just um, to make sure climate change doesn't progress as rapidly as it is at the moment. So just watching our, our carbon footprint and saving energy and all, all the things we know we should be doing. Um, yep. So Thank you so much, it. Johanna. That's absolutely fascinating. If you have a question for Johanna, please do give us a ring. The number is 01 223 Six four oh one two two three three seven five five six four, or you could send us a message on our WhatsApp number. After all that fire, let's have peace flowing like a river. Love 
Just a reminder, if you have a question for Johanna, the number is 01-223-375-564. We do have Aileen here in the studio and she has got, got a question. Aileen, over to you. Johanna, thank you so much for coming in. I have a few questions for you, actually. I'm hoping that, dear listener, do please call in as well if you have one. But something that I'm very aware of is when I hear about climate change, I can find it really depressing and I feel like I want to turn away and not pay too much attention to it. And I'm thinking for you, how do you cope with that in your research? And have you got any hints and tips for those of us that really need to be paying attention to how we're living? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think my my um, lots of my day-to-day life as a as a research student is quite mundane to be honest and I just sit in front of my computer and I look at I look at numbers and and sort of big spreadsheets um but I do occasionally step take a step back and and think oh um yeah the world is on fire um so we need to we really need to do something um but yeah I think completely ignoring it obviously isn't the solution to the problem um, so I think we should really just focus on the things that we can do, the things we can change. Um, and that really starts with, well, electing the right politicians who can do something, but also um, just our personal choices. And I'm sure we've heard it all before, but this sort of um, watch your diet, because, um, of course, we know at this point that if, if food has to travel a long way, um, it, it has a much higher sort of carbon footprint um, as does does meat, and it doesn't mean that you have to completely get rid of these these things in your diet, but just beware of what you're eating. Um, and the same goes for transportation. So if you can cycle, I mean Cambridge is a is a lovely place to cycle. Um, then do cycle um, and take the train wherever you can. Um, yeah, so that that's my approach to it. Just focus on on what you can change, um, and that can be incredibly encouraging as well. So sometimes when I read articles, it feels like we're in a really hopeless situation. Is there hope? I think I think there is hope, and actually, I don't I don't want to drag this um, the war into into this as well. But I think, um, well, being from Germany, also I've I've I think many Germans have realised how much how dependent we are on on Russian um, gas and oil, um, and I think that could be a huge chance to just um, for for um, our politicians to enable a faster transition to renewable energy. Um, so yeah, I think we have to see the the challenges and be real, be realistic about them, but also see the chances and opportunities we have, um, because we we can still um, not revert ch- climate change, but um, make sure it doesn't exceed those um, two two degrees that the um, IPCC thinks are. Um, yeah, it could be very bad for the planet. I was also thinking about, you had said that you did research in the Arctic and now you're looking at these forests in California. And I wondered, um, which of those landscapes, do you, do you feel an emotional bond to them now or a love for them? And, and does one <laughs> co- does one out-compete the other in terms of that, that sense of love for the place? <laughs> well, so I actually, I was never 
in the Arctic to do my research. Um, even then, I just looked at satellite images. But I have been on, on trips. I have been to Greenland, which was absolutely amazing, um, but also to California. And I, th I think um, they're completely different. Um, and you just have to... Yeah, if you if you are fortunate enough to take um, trips to to these amazing places, um, they're all, they're definitely special. I don't think I could um, choose one over the other. <laughs> um, but yeah, but even in the UK, just just going for a walk, um, you can always notice things that you haven't before. Um, and yeah, if you pay attention to the the birds we have, the trees that grow, um, it can be really. Yeah, it, it can feel a lot further away than it actually is because um, it's so, yeah, nature's all around us and, and ecosystems have um, sp special aspects to them wherever you go, really. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking about paying attention and I was thinking that you, when you're looking at all these photographs and, and I'm assuming, are they over huge pieces of land? How, how big are the areas that you're examining? Yeah, so, um, well, so... I have quite a lot of um, of these pictures um, through time, but also through space. So um, I'm using this one sensor specifically that's called Landsat, um, which was um, sent to space by um, the U.S. Geological Survey, actually, and um, and and NASA obviously has their their fingers in it too. Um, but yeah, so the Landsat sensor shoots images um, with pixels that are 30 by 30 meters. So I'm actually not sure what the um, the size of one scene is, so one one picture. But I think it's a it's a couple kilometers. But the picture pixels I look at are 30 by 30 meter squares, um, and I actually so I have all um, all fires that burned in the last sort of four decades. No, um, I have <laughs> like one pixel for basically. Um, so that's about 36 million pixels. Oh my goodness! Um, so you're looking that's under your research umbrella. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's why I have to use like the the super computer um, because it, one human brain can't um, yeah cannot possibly comprehend all of all of that um, data. Wow. Oh, gosh. So that's why you spend a lot of time with the computer, I assume, then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's quite cool because, um, yeah, Cambridge offers a lot of um, a lot of resources. And, and one we have is this high performance computer. Um, so I just use my, my laptop computer and I just send off um, what I want the, the big computer to do. And it does it for me and, and sends me the, the result, basically. I think this is old fashioned of me, but it's great to hear a young woman talking about examining and dealing with computers and satellites and NASA and geological surveys. Yeah. It's inspiring. It's good fun. Thank you, Johanna. I'm just going to give out the number again. If anyone has got a question, please do give us a ring. 01-223-375-564. Do call in. We'll listen to a bit more music. Again, peace flowing like a river.
we have Helena and Rowan on the line. Thank you for calling in. Do you have a question this morning? We do, we do. So Rowan and I, uh, Rowan is, how old are you, Rowan? Nine. Nine. So Rowan and I are going to go camping this summer. Uh, and Sam. Why are we going camping is what Sam says. We're going camping this summer in uh, Thetford Forest here in, in, in England. Oh, and we, we've never really gone full out camping. We've gone glamping <laughs> where we can, where we have a kitchen and everything. But this time, I think we might actually have to start a fire and everything. Is there any safety precautions you can tell us to so that we're safe camping? What do you think, Rowan? Uh, I don't know. No, I'm not asking you. I'm asking the, the <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think in, in Thetford Forest, you, even though it is, I think it's, um, that's a random fact, but I think it's the um, UK's largest lowland pine forest, in case you're interested. Um, I think it's fairly safe to go, go camping there. Um, I think they would probably tell you if you, if it was too dry to make a campfire or things like that. Um, so that's how they do it in the U.S. national parks. They'll just have a sort of a fire risk um, assessment for for every day, and they basically tell you um, it's safe to to make a fire or not. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think you should be fine, um, and it should be really lovely going camping there. Oh, thank you. Well, can we ask one more question? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so my son Sam, uh, who's who's playing on the computer now and won't get on the radio, uh, he he loves trees. He loves climbing trees. He loves all the trees. And he we went to a we camped at a different forest, and they were talking about how those trees got struck by lightning, and um, but that was a natural part of clearing out the forest and and making room for new stuff. Uh, as a young man, he would love, love, love to do things with trees and things like that. And and I, and as you're a researcher, is there any advice you can give him uh, for maybe uh, what kind of roles he could maybe be in the forest or taking care of the trees or anything? Ooh, well, I'm not. I'm not sure if if there's anything you can do if you just you just um, go for a walk in the forest. If there's anything you should be doing then but but i know that lots of um, places offer sort of volunteering opportunities mm-hmm. um i can actually think of in in so in in cambridge maybe you've been to um milton country park we love um, milton country yeah park. so that's the one i can think of they have um, lots of good opportunities for volunteers and um where you can clear out um yeah dead trees and and things like that um yeah so that might be worth looking into Oh, but if he wants a job like you when he grows up, when he's a bit older, <laughs> what kind of thing? Like, did you do Duke of Edinburgh and stuff? How did you prepare yourself Ooh, for yeah. the role you're in now? Um, so that that wasn't really a thing where where um, I grew up in in Germany, but yeah, definitely just um, if you get your your camping skills and um, hiking and and if you're in, into all of that, um, yeah, then you're definitely suited to doing doing some field work. Um, and becoming a researcher, if, if you want that, yeah. So that's that's kind of what I what I've done. I just always enjoyed being in nature um, and reading lots of books about it too, because that's really a way to be in nature when you when you can't at the moment. Um, yeah, I think that's my advice. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thanks so much, Helena and Rowan. Again, the number is o one two two three. Three seven five five six four.
Yeah, Hannah. We had a, we've had a WhatsApp from John. He's in Japan and he just wanted to let you know that in Japan, fires are very much illegal, whether they're the natural ones or man-made ones. And um, so they, they don't see fire as inherently good at all. And so it's a very interesting comment that, yeah, any fires in Japan are, are a no-no. So actually, uh, governments around the world uh, possibly need educating that, as you say, some fires some fires are are good. And maybe that's a direction your research will go in. I mean, what happens when you've done your PhD? Is there a kind of who lobbies the governments? <laughs> what's what's the next stage? Yeah, so so um, obviously in, in scientific research, most things just go through um, this huge peer review process to then eventually be published in, in scientific journals. Um, so that's kind of the way for us to get a, get get the word out there um, through these journals and, and hoping lots of people read our research. But then, of course, it's always good to have um, other ways of um, reaching out to, to the general public, um, be it through um, like more, um, pr not, not prose, but um, <laughs> kind of newspaper articles, things like that um, is always good. And then I guess um, as sort of um, fire ecologists, we're quite... Well, fortunate in a way that it, it tends to burn quite a lot and these fires are on the news um, a lot. So we are actually being asked um, about them by the media and then the wider public um, can learn about them. Yeah. And at what stage are you at in your PhD? So I've done about a year and a half of research. So I'm hoping it won't be much longer than another maybe two years. Okay, and um, I come from a very arts tradition, so I have no idea mm. what kind of what kind of job might you be doing in the future. <laughs> what do you have? You know, what's your heart set on? Yeah, so I mean, of course, this could change any any day, really. But um, at the minute, I'm still thinking I would like to stay in in academia for a bit. Um, so maybe do um, a postdoc after this, um, and do some more some more research. But also, especially with the all the satellite imagery. Um, um, or satellite image analysis I'm doing, um, I think I could be quite employable for um, big organizations like NASA or ESA because um, they do a lot of that. Um, yeah, so wonderful. That's, that's what I was thinking, something spacey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one last question. It's, it's very personal. I hope you don't mind. Um, as we know, you've got a, a German name and you're originally from Germany, but you studied in the States and now in Cambridge. So how did you how did you end up becoming a, a, a jet setting forest fire <laughs> expert? What was it that inspired you to leave Germany yeah. and, and go abroad? I think I was just always I've always been fascinated by different cultures and um different languages as well so I really wanted to learn English well also because it's just necessary in, in the professional world yeah and a good way of doing that was to go abroad um, and then I didn't originally plan to go to the US but I was also um competing in athletics um so I still throw the javelin um it's a big passion of mine and um so I actually got a, a sports scholarship to go to the US um, fantastic yeah so that's how I could actually afford going there how amazing um, yeah and I really enjoyed it you are an eco-warrior. <laughs> and we thank you so much for sparing your time and coming on Radio Maria this morning. Yeah, and I do hope perhaps you can come back um, when you finish your PhD and, and give us give us the, the second part and, sure. and where, where the research has gone and Good. where it's leading you. Thank, thank you, you so much, Johanna. Thank you.